0: Will you join with me in prayer? God, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for this opportunity to understand your word, to study your word, to hear your word. And God, we pray that you would speak to each one of us. God, I pray that my words might be your words. God, that you would change any that need to be changed, that you would erase any that need to be erased, and God, that you would Fill in the blanks where any blanks may exist. So come, Holy Spirit, come and do your work among us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I don't know if you're familiar with a tool called the Enneagram, but the Enneagram is a tool that has ancient roots and yet it's become really very popular today, both among Christians and non-Christians. It can be helpful in understanding our personality and the way in which we see and experience the world. It's not like a BuzzFeed quiz that identifies what Disney character would you be if you were a Disney character. It is a legitimate personnel assessment tool and you can learn about it on the Enneagram Institute's website but basically this tool involves nine different types and sometimes it's really obvious you might like hear this and say I know exactly what I am and sometimes it really requires some exploration so if you're not familiar with the Enneagram let me give you a quick sense of what it's like an overview of what People uh, who are each of the nine different personality types might think if they were seated around a table in a meeting. Um, As you will see as we go through the nine types, one type's not better than another type. They're just different. Type one is called the reformer. Um, They are people who are rational, idealistic, principled, purposeful, self-controlled, and perfectionistic. In a meeting, they are sometimes thinking things like, let's get this done right. Type two is a helper. These are people who are caring, highly interpersonal, demonstrative, generous, people-pleasing, and possessive. And in a meeting, they are thinking, how can I help? (laughs) Type three is the achiever. Achievers are success-oriented, pragmatic, adaptive, driven, and image conscious. In a meeting, they might be thinking, we need to look successful by getting a lot done. Type four is the individualist. These people are sensitive, withdrawn, expressive, dramatic, self-absorbed, and temperamental. Notice that every type has both pluses and minuses. In a meeting, the individualist will not at all be thinking like the achiever. They're not worried about success. Instead, they're thinking, we need to be creative. The type five is the investigator. Investigators are intense, cerebral, perceptive, innovative, secretive, and isolated. In a meeting, they are thinking, let's think this out carefully. Type six is the loyalist. These people are committed, security-oriented, engaging, responsible, but also anxious and suspicious. The type six in a meeting will have concerns because they are thinking, I can see lots of problems. That is very different from the type seven or the enthusiast. Enthusiasts are busy, fun-loving, spontaneous, versatile, distractible, and scattered. They will say something like, let's consider all the options when they're in a meeting. Type eight is the challenger. They're powerful, dominating, self-confident, decisive, willful, and confrontational people. The challenger will be the ones who says, we need to get this thing moving. And then finally, there's the type nine, the peacemaker. Peacemakers are easygoing, receptive, reassuring, agreeable, and complacent people. In a meeting, they want everyone to be on the same page. And so they might say something like, let's wait until Chris comes back to make a decision. I don't expect you to identify what your Enneagram type might be from just such a very quick overview. But some of you might have an idea of where you would land. For me, it was really obvious. I am an Enneagram One, a reformer, also known as a perfectionist. And part of what that means is that when I walk into a room, I see what needs to be improved. And it bothers me because I have a passion to make things better. I can't not notice what is wrong. I notice when there aren't enough connection cards on the table when people are coming into worship. I notice when the pasta is a little bit overcooked. I notice when people seem uncomfortable. And most of all, I notice when I make a mistake. Because I deeply want everything and everyone to be the best that we can be. So I found it amusing, and so like God, (laughs) that I get the sermon to preach in this sermon series is on focusing on thinking about what is lovely. (laughs) Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. To focus on what is true is so easy for me. I am passionate about truth. Noble, amen. It's so important. What is right? Oh, I try so hard to be what right. And pure, of course. Impurity is hard for me. My fellow Enneagram Ones can relate to all of that because we are good at being good. But today, we're told, think about, what's lovely think about what's beautiful not what's ugly what is right around us not as what's wrong and what needs to be fixed and that <laughs> is hard for perfectionists like me who identify themselves as enneagram ones when paul tells the philippians to think about what is lovely he uses a fascinating word prosphiles it means surprise lovely. (laughs) It isn't a complex word like some Bible words. It's not hard to explain. It means lovely. It means pleasing. It means winsome. It describes that which calls forth love. Philes means love, like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And pro means to move toward. So something is lovely if it moves us toward love. But what's fascinating about this word is that it is oddly unique. Wouldn't you think that a word like prosphiles, lovely, would be found throughout Scripture? Well, it isn't. This verse, Philippians 4, 8, is the only instance in which this word is used in all of Scripture. It was surprising to me to learn that, to learn that lovely is actually a secular word in a world. It's a word that Paul borrows from the Greek secular culture around him. In fact, all of these words that we are studying in Philippians 4, 8, have been so familiar to the greek secular culture they were words that were used by secular people in that day they are words that greek philosophers used to describe the kind of life to which people should aspire to live now i think there's a lesson for us in that secular isn't necessarily bad i hope you came to that conclusion during our at the movies series in july In that series, we found that there were gospel themes present in secular movies. God's grace isn't limited to the church. It's experienced by all of creation. God doesn't just provide for people who love him. God blesses people even when they don't acknowledge him. Think about what Jesus said. The rain doesn't just fall on the just. It falls on the just and the unjust. God's goodness is so overwhelming that it is like rain. It just falls on everyone. A few weeks ago, Pastor Matt talked about natural law, about how there are some things that everyone recognizes are just. Whether you acknowledge God or not, everyone agrees that murder is wrong and kindness is good. A spectacular sunset is beautiful whether or not you agree that the heavens declare the glory of God. That's natural law. It just is. In this series, we're seeking to find ancient wisdom for modern life. Paul tapped into vocabulary that the people around were already using in order to connect with them. If he were writing today, Paul wouldn't use that vocabulary. He would use modern-day vocabulary. One of the things that I love about being a part of a staff team is that I learn from other members of the staff. I am not the person on the staff who is most in touch with modern day language. And so I got some help from Ben, our Director of Community Engagement. If Paul were writing this today, what kind of language might he use to connect with people in our secular culture? And Ben taught me a new use of the word manifest. People today talk about manifesting. And let me explain what that modern day use of manifest means by reading you an example of how our secular world teaches us the way to discern the next right step. This is from our secular culture. It's only from your truth and heart's desire that you can manifest the life you want in working with your desires your connections to soul you're aligned to infinite intelligence and that's when manifesting your dreams comes easy now that's what I just read is the wisdom of today's secular world And just like in Paul's day, the world teaches us a way of discernment that seems close to what the Bible teaches. Words like truth and soul and infinite are words that relate to God. But what I just read to you is very, very different from what the Bible teaches. It's discernment based on you not based on the one who created you. And throughout this sermon series, we're seeking to understand godly discernment. Pastor Matt has defined discernment as the ability to take the next right step in the midst of many different options and competing voices. And we've already seen how the way to figure out what the next right step is, is to embrace godly values like truth, honor, justice and purity. But what do you do when you have two godly options, when both paths allow you to live into biblical values that we have been talking about in this series? Let me suggest that we ask, what is lovely? What is pleasing to you? What draws you toward love? What does your gut tell you to do? Christians don't often think like that. I've had a spiritual director for a number of years now many pastors have spiritual directors a spiritual director is a person who is trained to help you see how God is at work in your life and one of the questions that spiritual directors often ask is what is God's invitation to you in this situation to be honest That struck me as a surprising question when I first started getting spiritual direction. I wasn't used to thinking about God's invitation to me. I was used to thinking about God's call on my life. What does God want me to do for him? But when my spiritual director asked me to think about what God's invitation was to me, I believe that she wanted me to know what would be a lovely next step? What would draw me toward the love of God? What would be pleasing to me and to God? What's God's invitation to me in this moment? When you are trying to figure out the next right step, do you think about what you need to do or what you get to do? Do you focus on what is wrong in the world that you might need to fix? or? about what is lovely in the world that you might get to enjoy. The problem is that negativity tends to be more sticky than positivity, and I don't have any research statistics to back this up, but I know that it's true. Isn't it true that if you receive nine compliments and one criticism, that what you will think about over and over again is the one criticism. And how do you stop thinking about that? How do we not think about something like that? The more we try to not think about something, the more you'll find yourself thinking about it, right? So instead of focusing on emptying our minds of the negative thoughts, we have to fill our minds with what is true, what is honorable, what is just, what is pure, and what is lovely. Paul writes, Think about such things. He isn't talking about a passing thought. He's talking about focused attention. The word that he uses for think means to evaluate, to consider, to calculate. Paul wants us to allow these things to occupy a lot of space in our mind. He wants us to dwell on these things, to meditate on these things. What would that look like for us to think about what is lovely. Let me give you a really simple example, uh, which I did recently. Uh, These are my gladiolas. I don't know why, but they were amazing this year. They were taller than they have ever been. They were full of flowers. And so in the evening, I would sit on the patio and just look at them and smile because they were lovely to me. They were beautiful flowers that drew me toward love. They drew me toward love, not only because they were pleasing in appearance, but because they brought lovely thoughts to mind. Gladiolas make me think of my mother's flower garden when I was a child. My mother loved her gladiolas, and she was so proud of them they also make me think of my daughter's in-laws because these gladiolas are grown from bulbs that were a gift to me from my daughter's mother-in-law and every year when these flowers bloom they remind me of the blessing that the Colmer family has been to the durwachter family thinking about what is lovely can be as simple as noticing and enjoying lovely things around you. It can also be setting aside some time for Christian meditation. I have enjoyed using a free app called Pray As You Go, which guides you through about 10 minutes of Christian meditation. It's 10 minutes of music, and prayer and scripture reading and questions, all focused on the Word of God. Just 10 minutes can get my thoughts out of a groove of negativity, redirect me to focus on that which is lovely. And then third, we can intentionally compliment instead of criticize. Be intentional about commenting on what you notice that is lovely rather than what you notice that isn't right or you don't like. One of the ways that we can be counter-cultural Christians today is simply to speak positively, to not give in to rants, to not always feel like we have to offer our opinion when we disagree. I guarantee you that changing the way you think will change your life. William Barclay wrote that there is something of the utmost importance because it is a law of life that if a man thinks of something, often enough, he will come to the stage where he cannot stop thinking about it. His thoughts will be quite literally in a groove out of which he cannot jerk them. Have you experienced that? Sometimes we go through seasons in which it's hard to think about what is lovely. God does not always call us to take the pleasing path, the easy path. Sometimes Jesus calls us to pick up our cross and follow Him. A few weeks ago, Pastor Matt shared a story about his discernment process in selecting a seminary. I remember when I was exploring seminary. And because I went to seminary later in life, I had to figure out how to go to seminary and be a wife and a mother at the same time. And so I was geographically limited. Duke (laughs) could not be on my list because no one in their right mind would commute from north central Pennsylvania to North Carolina. So I had only three seminaries on my circle of possibilities. And I went to visit the first which was on my list. It was a little over two hours away. And I was quickly convinced that I could never go there. In fact, I was so certain of that that I left early. <laughs> I was hopeful when I went to the second seminary on my list because it was the closest one. And, uh, but when I visited there, it was also obvious that it was a poor fit for me. And so with one more seminary on my list, I was feeling pretty good because I thought to myself, if this one doesn't work out, I will not have to go to school (laughs) and I can take an easier path in ministry. So the last seminary on my list was Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, DC. It was the furthest one, a little over four hours away from my home. And I wasn't excited about going to Wesley because I knew that in many ways, it would not be easy for me. Even my visit proved that to be true because it rained the day that I visited. That may not sound like a big deal, but if you're familiar with Washington, D.C., you probably know that when it rains, the traffic is terrible. That day, in, in addition to getting stuck in traffic getting there, I get there, and there is hardly any faculty or staff On campus that day because there was some really big event happening downtown and everybody was in downtown DC and so I met with a whole bunch of substitute people Um, I got a tour of the seminary by a lovely Korean woman Um, but the problem was that she had a very heavy accent and she spoke very very softly and so I had a lot of difficulty both hearing and understanding her but i do remember one question that she asked me and she said to me did you see the big jesus i did not know what she was talking about because in my anxiety about driving in washington dc um, on massachusetts avenue i had not seen anything i didn't see the big Jesus that was a sculpture affixed to the exterior of the chapel that just about anyone driving down Massachusetts Avenue would see. Uh, So this lovely Korean woman said to me, don't leave until you've seen Jesus. She directed my gaze away from the rain, the traffic, the four-hour drive, the theological conflicts that I knew would be ahead of me. And she directed me to look at what was lovely, look at Jesus. During my four years at Wesley, I wish that I could say that I kept my focus on what is lovely, that I kept looking at the big Jesus. But the truth is, that I often turned my eyes away from what was lovely and chose instead to think about and to talk about what was lacking or even wrong with my seminary experience. I struggled to be community there because so many people there were so different from me and I just couldn't wrap my brain around how could we all be church together. One of the people who was so different from me, but whom I did learn to see as lovely, is Dr. Juliana Clausens. Dr. Clausens is an Old Testament scholar. She lives in South Africa, and she teaches at the University of Stellenbosch, and I took her class online my first semester at Wesley. Dr. Clausens describes herself as a feminist, and she is a trailblazer being the first woman in the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa to receive a degree in theology. In her class, I often found myself disagreeing with my professor, and that was threatening for this first semester seminary student who wanted to get a good grade. But as the weeks went by, I started to see Jesus in her. I saw Jesus in the way that she challenged me. She showed academic integrity and didn't just claim to have the truth because she was the professor and I was the student. She argued her position well and she inspired me to think out my position with greater clarity. She shared stories of how the scriptures that we were studying had been put into practice in her own life. And most of all, she offered the love of Jesus to the students in my class who were struggling either academically or personally. This South African scholar didn't just teach the word, she lived the word. And she did it in a way that was so incredibly different from how I had seen people in central Pennsylvania live out the scriptures. Dr. Clausen's challenged me and she gave me the opportunity to think about what is lovely. You don't have to go to seminary to have that kind of experience. Where are you turning your eyes away from what is uncomfortable or different or broken or disappointing or incomplete or just not right? And where can you Focus on what is lovely. Maybe it's a person who really challenges you and all you can see in that person is what is wrong. You can choose to think about what is lovely. You can choose to look at the big Jesus instead of the broken world. You may be familiar with a song uh, called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. It's an old song, it was written way back in 1922 but it has such good bones that today people like Lauren Daigle and Hillsong are recording it and including it in their concerts. The story of how this song was written is a great example, I think, of how to think about what is lovely. The composer is Helen Lemel, and she was born in England to a Methodist pastor. She grew up in very modest circumstances, but Helen was a very gifted musician. And because of her great gifts, her simple musical and life beginnings were transformed into really a a dream come true kind of a life. Helen traveled all over the world giving concerts. She married a rich man and she started living in Europe. And and then tragedy struck Helen um, and she lost her sight. And she, not having her sight, she lost her ability to perform. And not able to accept the burden of having a blind spouse, her husband left her. And so Helen once again found herself in very modest circumstances. Uh, she moved back to the United States uh, and totally blind. She continued to create music. She wrote out her soul, she, said her po- she set poems to music, and she would pick out the notes on a small keyboard and then call her friends to record that before she forgot the notes. When asked, how are you, Helen? Her frequent response was, I am fine in the things that count. Helen's best-known song communicates that truth, that despite our circumstances, we can be fine in the things that count when we focus on what is lovely and turn our eyes upon Jesus. I don't know what season you find yourself in. If you're in a hard season that doesn't seem lovely or pleasing, the good news that I have for you today is that Jesus is there in that season with you. You just have to look for him. There's loveliness around you. Look for it. Choose it. And when you, when you turn your eyes toward it, you can seek to discern the next faithful step that God has for you. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, and whatever you have learned or heard or received from me or seen in me, Put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen.